Welcome to Bethlehem Covenant Church's sermon podcast. We pray that you will be blessed as you listen to this message. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn with me over to John chapter 11 as we start in verse 45. I'm going to read a few verses here from John 11, and then I'm going to read John 12, 1 to 28, as we continue on in our Gospel of John uh, sermon series here. Uh, last week we looked at Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And so then this is what happens right after that. It says this, Therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all, he said. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take Jesus' life. And then jump down to chapter 12, verses 1 to 28. It says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table. And then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of her perfume. One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who would later betray him, objected to this saying, Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It is worth over a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and as keeper of the money bag, he would help himself to what was in it. Leave her alone, Jesus said. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and he sat upon it, for it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming to you, seated on a donkey. At first, his disciples did not understand this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize these things had been written about him and that he had done these things. Now the crowd that was there with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word about him. Many people um, believed because they had heard and seen the miraculous signs and they went out to meet him. And so the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. 
There were even some Greeks among those who went to worship at the feast, and they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida, with a request. Sir, they said, we want to see Jesus. And Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip together told Jesus. And Jesus replied, the hour is come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. Where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. I want to open this sermon with a question for us all to think about. Are you holding on to your life, or are you holding on to Jesus? Are you so afraid of what might happen that you don't give your everything to follow Jesus? Or are you willing to lose everything that this world has to offer for the sake of him? This past year, we learned more about the story of Joseph Kennedy, the high school football coach in Washington, who seven years ago lost his position as coach for praying on the field after football games and inviting players to join him. He said that he had felt God put this on his heart, that whether win or lose, he was going to pray on the field after the game. Players could join him if they wanted to, but certainly they didn't have to. But this was something for him that he felt like he was supposed to do. Well, this went on for a while, and then in 2015, the school district had a complaint and told the coach they were constitutionally required to tell him that he refrained from overt public religious displays on the football field while on duty. His argument was that he didn't make any of the kids attend. It was just something he felt God wanted for him, and if any kids wanted to come, they could. The school argued that a kid would feel pressured to attend, and who knows, they might have been right. So the coach complied. The next game, he didn't walk out on the field and pray. But after the game, he just felt so bad about it. He went home and he cried and he felt that he had denied God and done something wrong. He believed in his heart that he was supposed to pray in that way. And so he drove back to the field that very same night. No one was still there in the, in the stadium. And so he walked out to the 50-yard line alone. And he knelt and he prayed and he wept. And in that moment, alone with God, he made a decision that he knew could cost him his job, but he felt was from the Lord. And so after the next game, he was back on the field, kneeling and praying. At this point, the school district had to let him go. And to be fair, some of them maybe didn't want to, but they were just trying themselves to figure out how to follow the rules. And this is one of the areas that we have said public faith, faith like this by an employee is not allowed. Well, it made it all the way up to the Supreme Court. And this past year, the Supreme Court sided with Joseph Kennedy. I bring up this story because I want us to think about how far are we willing to go to follow Jesus in our life? Are we willing to lose our place, lose our job, lose the praise of men, have our kids mad at us, 
miss opportunities, even risk our life for the sake of the Lord? What happens if you feel God is telling you to do something and you know there's going to be a great cost? Are you willing to still do it? For me, the issue is not about laws or Joseph Kennedy. It's what am I going to do the next time the Lord tells me to do something? And if it's outside of my comfort zone or even a risk, am I going to go there? Am I going to lay it all down for my Savior? As Jesus said to his disciples, whoever loves his life will lose it, but whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for all eternity. And the word hates in this context means values less. It's not like we think of the word hate, but it is in comparison with the Lord and his kingdom. In other words, Jesus is saying, whoever loves their life and their position and their comforts in this world more than me is not worthy of me. Whether your particular God is money or public praise or power or something else, Jesus said we can't serve two masters. Jesus has to come first. Jesus was willing to lay down his life for us in full obedience to the Father, even though it was hard for him. He says here, my heart's troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this hour that I came. Father, be glorified. Even Jesus had to be willing to go to the cross, to lay down his life. And that example he gave to us, that the kernel of wheat has to fall to the ground and die for many other seeds to come. And so the question, are we willing to lay down our everything for Jesus? You see, the tone of the Gospel of John has changed here in chapter 12. For three years, Jesus has been doing these beautiful miracles, and the crowds have mostly been getting bigger. People have been anticipating whether or not Jesus is the Messiah and is going to take up an earthly throne. But now in this chapter, we see where everything is going. After the raising of Lazarus from the dead, the Sanhedrin is starting to conspire. Jesus is even talking about his own death, and he's asking his disciples to examine their hearts. How far are they willing to go for him? You know, Judas is soon going to walk away. He's going to choose the world over Jesus, but 11 of the disciples are not, and Mary's not. And Lazarus is not, and Zacchaeus and Joseph of Arimathea and, and those who come out of their houses here on Palm Sunday, they're not to welcome. They are, they are willing to lose their place, lose their life to follow the Lord. There were many who didn't believe, but there were those who did. I want to break down our scripture into four parts today. First, the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was like the Supreme Court for the Jews. They were given the power by Rome to run Judea as long as they maintained peace and control there. They weren't allowed to execute anyone without Rome's approval, but they were given great power and privilege to rule their people, to maintain their worship in the temple and their traditions, feasts, and Sabbaths as long as it didn't interfere with Rome. And so the idea was keep Rome happy and we'll all be happy. Well, the Sanhedrin was made up of high priests and Pharisees. The chief priest at that time was a guy by the name of Caiaphas. And the Pharisees were a group of devout Jews, strict on laws, and like local pastors of the villages, you could say. Together, they all made up the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, to keep the peace. Well, we read in John eleven forty five 45, that after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, many people began to believe in him. 
But some people, it says, went and told the Sanhedrin. They tattled on Jesus. And so the council calls this emergency meeting. And, and instead of sending representatives out to go and even see if it's true that Lazarus has been raised from the dead, instead of maybe asking the question, could Jesus be for real? I mean, look at people are coming back to life. Instead of thinking of any of that, the only item of business for them was this. What are we going to do about this problem? This man is performing miracles soon. Everybody's going to believe in him. And, and you might think to yourself, well, what would be so wrong with that? If he was the Messiah, wouldn't that be the good thing? Well, not for the Sanhedrin. Because listen to what they say in verse 48. It tells of their heart. It says, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So who was their faith in? What has become their main focus? Who was their God pleasing Rome, keeping their place. Their focus was not on the truth anymore. It was not on what God might be doing. It was the fear of the empire. They refused to see God at work in Christ, what he is doing right in front of them, the miracles that reveal the truth of Jesus, the Messiah. They refused to believe or surrender to his lordship, first because they didn't want to change and, and, and surrender to his lordship, but then second, because they feared Rome and they didn't want to lose their place, lose this, the little power that they still had. They're interested in survival, not truth. They love their life as it is right now, where they're on the top <laughs> and they're the ones here that I think Jesus is mostly talking about when he says the one who loves his life is, is going to lose it. And it's so sad because in the Gospel of Luke, it tells us that as Jesus rides in Jerusalem, he weeps over the city because he can see what's coming. He can see their future. You know, everything they're trying to hold on to, they're going to eventually lose. Rome is going to turn on them. He says in Luke 19:42, if only you had known on this day what would bring you peace, but it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come when your enemies are going to build an embankment against you and circle you and hem you in on every side. They're going to dash you to pieces, you and your children. They're not going to leave one stone on another because you didn't recognize the time of God's coming. Jesus is saying, you're doing all this to please Rome and try to keep your positions of power and save your nation. You think keeping Rome happy is going to save you? And what you're doing is destroying your nation. You've turned away from God. You're no longer seeking him. You're rejecting the one who came to save you, all trying to please Rome when Rome doesn't love you. Rome's eventually going to turn on you. But isn't this the same temptation that every nation and person faces? That same fear, that same pride. That is why Jesus says, are you going to hold on to your life or follow me? For me, practically speaking, this challenges me to be willing to do what is right, even if it isn't possible or popular. It challenges me to examine my own heart. Who am I really living for? Who am I seeking most to please, God or, or something and someone else? And that someone else might just be myself, doing what I want and what I think is best for me instead of what God has commanded. Well, we will all be tempted, I think to think that our way is better. What's interesting here, you know, is the, 
And the high priest Caiaphas, he says in the middle of the meeting, he says, don't you realize it's better for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish? He's simply saying, let's kill Jesus so we can survive. It's a terribly selfish and horrible evil thing. But John adds this commentary afterwards saying that Caiaphas didn't say this on his own. It was like God put the words in his mouth for not the reasons that Caiaphas was thinking. Caiaphas was thinking evil, selfish, but, but God is also using Caiaphas in this moment for a prophecy. For one man would lay down his life to not only save Israel, but all nations. Jesus is one life given would save us from our sins and give us eternal life. So Caiaphas wasn't realizing how God was even using him and this whole situation to accomplish his glory. You know, this reminds me too uh, that people plot and conspire and evil has its intent, but in the end, God always wins. So which side are you wanting to be on in the end? <laughs> you can hold on to this world and go down with it, or you can hold on to Jesus. Only Jesus loves you, and only he is truly able to save you. The second part of this story, though, that I want to mention is how Jesus is anointed by Mary. And it's so interesting because the people who normally would do the anointing at that time were the priests. If you were sick or if God had chosen you for a special assignment, the priests would come and anoint you, just like Samuel did for David. But where are the chief priests and the leaders? Well, they're all off conspiring against Jesus. So who's going to be left to anoint Jesus for the cross? It's Mary. Because God does not look at the outward appearance, but the heart. And she was a woman who believed and loved him. She was sitting at his feet, and so God chose her. She goes to her room, she brings out the most expensive and precious thing that she owns, and she gives it all to Jesus. He never asked her to do it, but she just did it. She's not holding on to this world, she's holding on to Jesus. She was willing to give up her most prized possession at that time to bless the Lord and serve him. And there's a great hidden symbolism here. Um, for this perfume is described as a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. It was over a year's wages. It was the most expensive thing that she owned. And even more so, it is believed that she saved this perfume for a dowry if she ever got married. And so what is believed is that in this moment, Mary is saying, I give you everything that I am. My finances, my first love, my security, my future. The perfume had a small opening at the top, and only a few drops would fill that whole room. But it tells us in the Gospel of Mark that Mary breaks open the seal, and she pours it all on the feet of Jesus. So the whole house is filled with the fragrance, and then she wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. Judas doesn't like this one bit because he only saw dollar signs going down the drain we're beginning to see that Judas is not going to hold on to Jesus, but his love is for something else. But Jesus said, it was intended that she save this perfume for the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor, but you won't always have me. And in this, Jesus again predicting his death, and he's also mentioning that God was using this act um, as his anointing for the cross. Again, what the priests were supposed to do, but didn't, Mary did. It reminds me, again, we just passed Christmas, just like at the birth of Jesus. I mean, King Herod and the religious leaders are nowhere near Bethlehem, but the shepherds and the wise men from a foreign land are. So, too, in our scripture, it's not the chief priests who are with Jesus at this critical moment. It's Mary 
It's Lazarus. It's some Greeks who are traveling through. John began his gospel with the words in John 1.11, He came to those which were his own, but his own didn't receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so in regards to this part, you know, where Mary anoints Jesus, I'm challenged in this to think about what is the most important thing to me and would I offer it to him? You know, Mary, by giving this perfume, by giving her dowry and her financial security, was saying to Jesus, I'm not going to hold on to this world and these things. I love you more, and all that I have is yours. The third part of our scripture is Jesus then enters into Jerusalem after that anointing. We usually look at this on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, but it's already in our text, and so we look at it now. But the riding in on a donkey, the shouting of Hosanna, which means save, the declaring Jesus king was all part of God's plan, all prophesied in the Old Testament. People knew it. They knew this is how the Messiah would be revealed, and sure enough, he was. Many people had heard about the stories about Jesus and the miracles, and they wondered, could he possibly be the one? And so when he rode in on that donkey, it was joy. It was celebration. It was like, man, this is the day we've been waiting for our whole life. This is going to be freedom for our land. This is going to be deliverance, you know. Um, the scripture in the Old Testament that speaks about the donkey and the Messiah is Zechariah 9.9. And it says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, O daughter of the Lord. Your king is coming to you seated and riding in on a donkey. And Luke, it tells us that even children were dancing in the streets as Jesus rode in. And people were laying down their coats and waving palms and coming out of their houses. And by doing so, they were, they were saying, we believe in Jesus. And the Pharisees were rebuking them and telling Jesus to tell them to be quiet. But Jesus says, I can't. If they're quiet, even the stones are going to cry out. And it's a truth that the majority of the people there that day were probably expecting Jesus to deliver them from Roman oppression. But that isn't what he came for. He came to deliver them from their sin, an even greater enemy. They wouldn't understand that yet. But I still think this is a good day because they were courageous enough to come out of their houses and publicly declare in front of everybody, Jesus is king. And in that land, in that time, that was a huge step of faith. They were denying the Sanhedrin. They were standing up to the Romans. They were not going to hide. When I go to Israel on trips, it's very different than here. There are three main religions in Israel, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. And what you see and feel immediately walking out of that airport in Tel Aviv is that a person's religion is the most important thing to them. It's not just a part of their life. It affects everything in their life. A Jew has Sabbath and shuts down his shop for a whole day instead of making money. They honor the Torah and give that to God. Their clothes, their hair, their traditions, it all is different, and it all communicates who they are. A Muslim, too. They wear certain clothes and have traditions that they honor. Their prayers and scriptures are read and spoken everywhere. Even the Christians there in Israel are different than they are here. They're like the early church in so many ways. They're the minority. 
but willingly put their life on the line to speak the name of Jesus and spread the gospel and charity to people in Gaza and Palestine or their Orthodox neighbors, and often they're rejected for it. A person's faith in religion is not separate from their daily life. It's not hidden away. Everybody knows who you are. Every morning on the loudspeakers in every neighborhood, you hear the Muslim call to prayer. When it is Passover or feast of whatever, the Jewish people are out there walking into the city at dawn to celebrate in the public square, worshiping right in the streets. Their faith is not just a small part of their life. It's not a private thing. It affects every aspect of their daily life, their identity. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, these people said, this is my king. This is the true ruler of my life, of whom I'm going to follow, live, obey, and exist for. It is not King Herod. It is not Rome. It's Jesus. In our country, in our world, are we okay that people know who we are and who's the ruler of our life? You know, it's culturally acceptable to be a Christian here as long as it doesn't interfere with what culture believes and does. But what happens when we come out of our houses and declare Jesus is our king and we begin to live countercultural? <coughs> it says in John 12, 42, that many of the leaders believed in Jesus because of the Pharisees, though, they wouldn't confess their faith for fear that they'd be put out of the synagogue if they did. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. So do we fear that if we confess Jesus as Lord, we'll be put out of our clubs and teams and not included in certain groups? If we said no to certain things or these things aren't right because our faith matters more and the practices and beliefs we're going to live and we're not going to hide... Are we courageous enough to come out and finally say, Jesus is my king? The last part of our scripture is where Jesus speaks about his death. Jesus tells his disciples that the hour has finally come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then instead of saying, so I'm going to rightfully take my place on the throne. That's what they would have thought glorified meant, you know. I'm going to take up my spot in Jerusalem. Instead of that, he follows up the word glorified with, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and remains a single seed. But if it falls to the ground and dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus knew the way to glory. It was going to be through his death. He was going to give his life for the salvation of many. And what's more is that he says the disciples are going to have to follow in the same way. Jesus says, whoever serves me must follow me. Where I am, my servant will also be. Jesus is telling them they too will have to give their life. The way to glory is laying down our life. We don't go seeking persecution, but Jesus told us it would find us if we're with him. He said, if they hated me, they'll hate you also, and they did. All of the disciples were persecuted, imprisoned, and killed. They would all have to follow Jesus in laying down their life. And in a way, Jesus is saying, if you aren't willing to give your life, then now's the time to leave because that's what's coming for you. But if you're willing to stay with me, 
I will be with you even in that death and you will be raised to eternal life. Whoever saves his life in this world is going to lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will truly find it. And throughout time, people from all over this world have given their life for Jesus to spread the message of salvation, to care for others in his name, to not back down when a world stands against, to be willing to live for what is coming and not hold on to this life, but hold on to Jesus instead. For Jesus said, what good is it if you gain the whole world, yet forfeit your soul? There's this great hymn we sometimes sing in this church called, I Surrender All. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. It's what's asked of us. Now, thankfully, most of us will never have to face martyrdom. But all of us will be faced with things like Joseph Kennedy was, or just the temptations of this world to compromise, to put something else above him, to be silent instead of speak, to seek the praise of men more than the praise of God, or to fear the empire or losing our place. Most of the time, for most people, it will be things like this. And so the question is, what will we do? Will we hold on to this life and, and our place or hold on to Jesus? trust him and follow him into a great adventure where God gets the glory and our life bears fruit and we live for treasures in heaven and our king who reigns above reigns in us this day I hope you have a wonderful Sunday God bless you thanks for listening to this week's message to stay up to date with all of Bethlehem Covenant Church's information and events head to bccwaverly.org.